Hey everyone, it's Moshe Wenunu with your Mo News interview for this week. With all the headlines regarding the chaos with the airlines, travel woes for tens of millions of Americans, tens of thousands of cancellations and delays, I thought it was best to speak with one of the leading travel experts to make sense of it all, Peter Greenberg. I first met him when we worked together for nearly a decade at CBS News, where he is the longtime travel editor. He also hosts a number of shows over on PBS that are broadcast on Amazon Prime and Apple TV as well, including a series called Royal Tour, where he has the leader, president, or king of a country. Uh, give him a tour of the country. It's uh, pretty incredible to watch, so check those out on PBS. Whether it's land, sea, or air, Peter has a great way of breaking things down. We taped this conversation on Tuesday, June 21st. Peter joined me from just outside Izmir, Turkey, where he is taping his newest special. Thanks for joining me, Peter. You got it, Moosh. So we're coming off of a long holiday weekend here in the U.S., 20,000 airline delays, thousands of cancellations. It's been clear for a while that Americans were ready to travel this summer like never before. What happened? Well, actually, it's been clear since last year that they were ready to travel before, and they did. The problem is the airlines got themselves in a problem because you may remember when they got all the federal aid, that federal aid was predicated during the pandemic on them not laying off anybody, not firing anybody. So for a period of many, many months, they flew with a full staff and empty planes. The airlines are looking to raise cash to save money. So they came up with a scheme to offer early buyouts and retirement deals early to their staff. They thought maybe 4% would take them. About 16% did. It was their opportunity to say, okay, I've done this job. Goodbye. See you later. And that included a lot of pilots. So that when travel came roaring back, relatively speaking, in May and June of 2021, the airlines didn't have the pilots to fly them. Now, does that mean they've hired a lot of pilots since? They didn't. Why? Because then you had the different variants of, of, of uh, COVID. Travel started dropping again. Nobody thought clearly here. The fact is the pent-up demand never left. And when the demand came back, the airlines said, great, there's great demand. Let's schedule everything. So they added all sorts of new routes. I mean, in a given year, how many routes do you think Southwest Airlines pre-pandemic would add? The answer is maybe one. After the pandemic, they added more than 30. JetBlue added 29. Well, guess what? Didn't hold up because they became overscheduled and understaffed. You threw in the demand and everything completely fell apart. And as a result, you had planes delayed, you had planes canceled. And worse, the TSA was understaffed. So you had chaos at the airport. And I haven't even thrown in weather yet. So you right. have the beginning makings of a recipe for a system meltdown before weather even played a part. And then, of course, we had Memorial Day weekend, and you had our last weekend with the thousands of delays and cancellations. So did the airlines add routes here? I mean, did they run the numbers and say, do we have enough pilots? Or are they literally just kind of flying blind here, so to speak? Uh, they are literally flying blind because the scheduling guys weren't talking to the operations guys. It just didn't work. Um, and they saw all this revenue to make, but guess what? They can't get the revenue if they're busy apologizing for people because they slept last night at the Charlotte airport. So the bottom line here is they then tried to do a little triage. They tried to preemptively cancel flights. That didn't solve the problem. Then they started canceling routes. Remember the 29 routes that JetBlue added earlier in the year? They canceled 27 of them, right? Did that help? Not really. What happened a week and a half ago? American Airlines parked 100 planes. It's about one-eighth of their fleet. They parked 100 planes, and they had to admit the reason? They did not have the pilots to fly them. Now, 
There's one more thing I have to throw into the mix, fuel prices. So you take all the planes that they parked. Those are mostly regional jets, 50-seaters that fly to cities like Toledo, Ithaca, Islip, New York, Eureka, California, uh, Palm Springs. They parked those planes because the fuel costs made them economically unviable. And the crazy part, they also, to try to keep the pilots they had, they gave them almost a 50% salary bump. So based on the economics of that, even if the planes were 85% full, they could not make any money. So they've gotten themselves into a real bind here, and I don't know how they get out. So we have staffing shortages. We have pilot shortages. We have uh, weather issues. We have fuel prices. Anything else in the in the mix here? I mean, is there oh, yeah. also, uh, Peter, I mean, it's, it's been a couple of years of COVID. Is there some institutional knowledge that's been lost uh, within the airlines themselves, too? No, I think the airlines have always been stupid. That's that's the problem, they, because the, it's true. They they basically uh, are revenue seekers at the expense of, of common sense. The, uh, look, you want to talk about shortages? Ground handlers, the guys who work under the wing, right? There are one point two fewer one point two million fewer of them globally than there were before the pandemic. We had a situation a week and a half ago where a pilot actually left the cockpit walked down to the tarmac to help load bags so his plane could possibly leave. Not leave on time, just leave. So here's that problem. And then we have one more thing. We talked about the pilot shortage. Let's talk about flight attendants. You know, at every airline, it's a very tough period of time, the last 10 days of any month. Because by that period of time, after the first 20 days of any month, and by the way, this predates the pandemic, the flight attendants and pilots have one of two things happen. Either one, they've flown their maximum number of legal hours for that month and they can't fly anymore, or they've flown their minimum number of hours and they don't want to fly anymore. In the past, the airlines had reserves. They had junior pilots and junior flight attendants. They could say, okay, you're on reserve. You're taking that San Diego flight. You're taking that Reno flight. You're taking that Chicago flight. They don't have the reserves either. So you're seeing flight after flight canceled. Now, is there a solution to this? Well, it lies with the U.S. Department of Transportation because you can't expect Congress to do anything in the age of deregulation. Can't happen. There's no passenger bill of rights out there. But there is Department of Transportation rulemaking. You may remember the famous DOT tarmac delay rule. It went into effect a number of winters ago when so many people were trapped on on airport tarmacs for three, four, five, six hours at a time with planes going nowhere. And it it forces them to return back to the gate. Right. Well, the DOT made a rule. From now, from that point on, any plane that pushes back from the gate, if they don't, if they're stuck out there and they don't get back to the gate and get rid of those passengers into the terminal within three hours of the time they push back from the gate, they're liable to a fine of twenty-seven thousand five hundred dollars per passenger. So, on a loaded seven thirty-seven, you're already talking seven figures. And the airlines railed against this and said, "This is terrible. It'll never work." Ask me how many fines have been imposed since that tarmac rule effect went into effect. How about two? So the wow. point is, you can do it if you want to, right? I'll give you another one. So, Let's go- so Peter, so Peter, what sort of rule could uh, Transportation Department impose immediately to oh, uh, try to alleviate some of this? Well, let's forget for the moment that we have a problem. Everything that I've talked about. Here's a rule they should have imposed years ago that would help. It's a mathematical certainty that any runway in the world can only handle about 23 takeoffs an hour, right? You have to taxi to the runway, 
Mm-hmm. You have to spool up and you take off and there's about a three minute separation between the next guy who comes in. Well, do the math. 23 is about what you can handle. And that's if the separation is like only two and a half minutes. So why are airlines allowed to schedule 38 departures at eight o'clock in the morning? Mm. Why are they allowed to schedule 34 departures at five in the afternoon? That only means that your flight, if it's deemed on time, has only pushed back from the gate on time. It doesn't mean you're leaving. So why don't they institute a lottery system and basically say, American, you have 805. You can schedule a flight at 805. United, you got 819. Delta, you got 809. And if you miss that, if you miss that hit time, you're in the penalty box. Right? Guess what? Airlines would not artificially schedule their flights to be competitive. Take a look at airline schedules. Guess what? How many flights are scheduled to leave at 7.59 or 8 o'clock? Because they all want to appeal to guys like you and me saying, that's the first flight of the day. But if they're all the first flight of the day, we're all delusional. And they are. So that's one thing the DOT could do right now. That's for starters. The second thing to do is, is to employ, uh, is to enact a rule saying that if you can't uh, get a crew staffed within 45 minutes of departure, your plane, your flight is canceled, meaning you're doing that immediately. You're not going to keep people waiting at the airport knowing that the crew's never going to show up anyway and then canceling three hours later. It's amazing what those consequences can be, especially if you add financial penalties to them. Look at the tarmac delay rule. It has to happen because in the competitive world of deregulation, there's nobody telling the airlines what they can do. And as a result, they do what they want to do at the expense of the other airlines, at the expense of themselves, and not to mention the expense of us. Are there certain airlines that are doing this better or worse than others right now, Peter? It depends on their regional jets. It depends on their commuter airlines. Uh, you're going to see, I mean, look, you're looking at Delta canceling more flights this week than others. Uh, but this goes in a cyclical way. Already, we're seeing airlines pulling out of markets because they realize they can't fly them anymore. When I say pulling out, that means we're canceling service, not canceling flights. So this week alone, American canceled service to Toledo, Ohio, Ithaca, Ithaca, New York, and Islip, Long Island. All right. That means as of Labor Day, they're gone. Right. These the are, are these routes that were more popular pre-COVID that are no longer? Oh, they were popular the because they fed into the hub, hub and spoke system where people wanted to go. People weren't flying from Islip to get to their final destination. They were flying from Islip to get to Philadelphia to go to L.A. Uh, people weren't flying from Toledo, Ohio to go to San Francisco. They were flying from Toledo, Ohio to go to Chicago to go to San Francisco. Right. It was right. hub and spoke feed. But think about this. Once you start pulling out and Toledo is a good example. Who else has announced they're pulling out of Toledo? Not just American, United and Delta. That means Toledo, Ohio no longer has a major U.S. carrier flying there. What happens to that airport? What happens to the people who work there? What happens to the people who live in that city who always use that airport? Here's what it means. In order to get their next flight out, they're going to have to drive an hour to get to Detroit, which is already a congested airport. And you're going to start- But the airlines are pulling out because they're not making any money off these routes anymore. Well, two reasons. They can't support the staff because they don't have the staff. And even if they did with fuel prices and pilot wages now, based on pricing, they can't make any money. It's a double win. Peter, one of the reasons I love talking to you is because you're so well-sourced when it comes to the C-suite at these airlines. What are the CEOs telling you uh, so far about this summer? Uh, what 
well, despite what you said earlier that the airlines have always done dumb things. Um, but what, what are they telling you uh, about what has happened so far and when they see potential light at the end of the tunnel here? Well, what has happened so far, they're, they're you know, throwing up their hands because uh, in a recent interview, Scott Kirby said he's hoping the government will solve this. Does that mean this that- is the CEO of United, right? Right. Does that mean he's asking for re-regulation? I don't think so. I think he's asking for a rulemaking for the DOT so that if he does something, the other airlines have to do it as well. They all have to play by the rules. Uh, now, are there any short-term solutions for the summer? I'm sorry to say there are not because the pipeline for new pilots is not full. It's rather empty. As a result, you can't just, you know, I can't just hire you today, have you kick the tires, sit in the left seat and fly the plane. There's a huge training regime that has to go into effect, and that costs money, and that takes a lot of time. So here how we many are. Years, how many years does it take to train a commercial airline pilot? Oh, it's not that many years, because most of them have already had training experience in other aircraft or on other airlines. But it's a good six to nine months, all right? That's, that's the gestation period there for a certified multi-engine airline pilot. Now, put that in perspective as to the number of pilots you need. Do the math. It ain't going to be solved this summer. Two things are going to happen. By September 15th, kids are back in school. A lot of people are going to find themselves back in the workplace, either because they want to go back or because their companies are telling them they have to go back. They're also going to wake up and realize how much money they spent in the last six months on travel as airfares have quadrupled and hotel rates are higher than they were in 2019, with hotels actually providing less service. Even though they wanted to travel, they dipped into their wallets big time. So when they wake up on September 15th, they're going to say, you know what? I'm going to stay home for a while. That's when you're going to see airfares start to come down. That's when you're going to see airline schedules start to stabilize. That doesn't mean common sense has come back. It just means it's the numbers. I I, I want to get at this uh, one more question here on the pilot shortage. What's what is the underlying reason behind that, Peter? Why is it that we're producing or less people are uh, looking to become pilots these days? And how are the airlines trying to incentivize Americans to uh, hey come fly with us or come well, fly the planes for back, us? Let's go back historically. Where did airlines get their pilots from? Traditionally, historically, the military. You know, you, you were a carrier pilot. You, were, you flew for the Air Force. Boom. That's your next level up. Uh, so many ex-military guys flying for the airlines. Well, that ended about 10 years ago because what's the Air Force and the military doing now? It's drones. So right. most of their guys are being trained as gamers in some you know, deserted spot in the Nevada desert to go take somebody out in Iraq. That's not training them to be airline pilots. That's number one. Number two, uh, there are no, the airlines can't depend on the military, so what do they have to do? They didn't know what to do. Now, some airlines, United's one of them, have started their own flight schools to train anybody, and I mean anybody, from scratch to be a pilot. Well, how long does that take? And I think that was your first question, uh, your original question about pilot training. That's not eight to nine months. That's two years. At least two years. And by the way, when you graduate from that, you don't go into a jet. You're in a Piper Cub. You're in a Cessna 172. And then you move your way up as you gain your hours to get to be in the right seat of a, of a commuter jet. Problem number two, will there be commuter jets based on the 50-seat problem we have with the cost of operating those planes? It's, it's just a major mess. So one other uh, reason that the airlines cited, and I'd love to know why they cite this uh, and does it help them, but weather, how, how serious were the weather issues? I mean, I feel like as somebody who grew up flying out of Chicago, who's lived in New York for a number of years, you often hear weather, but then you look outside and it's perfectly sunny. 
Um, what do you make of that reason? And why do the airlines like to tell you it's always weather? Well, in most of the cases, they're actually telling you the truth because it's not the weather where you are. It's the weather where your plane is coming from or flying through. In a given day, I'll give you an example. In a given day, about 47% of the Southwest Airlines fleet is either taking off or landing at one Florida airport or another. So if you have a weather front coming across Florida and all these planes are making multiple stops every day, there's a system ready to shut down. That's just one, right? If you're in San Francisco trying to get to Atlanta, but there are thunderstorms and lightning that closes the runways in Atlanta, and that's where your plane is coming from, you can look out the window and see a beautiful sunny day in San Francisco. That doesn't mean you're going anywhere. So I know the thought is, it's an emotional reaction. By the way, I've had it myself. Oh, they're all lying to me. They're just using weather as an excuse because they can't get their act together. Nine times out of 10, it is weather. But they're not being clear enough with, with the customer with the passengers, with the travelers, as to where the weather is so they understand the process of how that plane gets to them. We still have a society, Mosh, where so many people think that when they wake up in the morning, their plane has been waiting for them for nine hours at the airport, and it hasn't. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you for the tips because, I mean, typically my understanding was if I took that 6 a.m. flight, that plane was there overnight, the crew slept there overnight, that is a closer to guarantee that my plane will take off. What what tips do you have for folks, uh, you know, are headed to, you know, flying to grandma's house this summer and would really like to get there on time? Uh, send her a card and tell her you'll be there after September 15th. But forgetting that, <laughs> but forgetting that, let's go back to what you just mentioned about the first flight of the day. The first flight of the day is good advice pre-pandemic, but I have to add something to it. Pick an airline with the first flight of the day that's flying from an airport where you're flying from, where they don't have a crew base or the airline itself is not based. Because then the plane that comes in does overnight there the night before, and the crew is a 90% chance of staying with that plane so that you're going to get out the next morning because the crew stays with the plane. That's the, that's the advice. Now, since so many people make connecting flights, there's another issue. And that is when you go online to make a reservation, I've seen legal connection times, legal in quotes, by the way, of 34 minutes. That's suicidal. You Forget it. You can't even get off your connecting flight in 34 minutes if you're sitting in the back. So give yourself at least two hours between connecting flights because if your first flight is late or canceled and you finally get to the second flight and it's gone, even though the airline says, oh, we'll put you on our next available flight, Here's the news bulletin. There is no next available flight because the airlines have cut back on flights. They're flying at 96% load factors. You'll be sleeping in the rocking chair at Charlotte. So that's what you need to know. At least two hours. And if you're going overseas, and I'm overseas now, and you're going through the United Kingdom or Ireland, I mean, give yourself three to four hours in connecting flights because they don't have enough baggage handlers. They don't have enough ground people. They have enough security people, not to mention passport control. I was in Ireland the other day for a 6.30 flight in the morning. I got to the airport in Dublin at 3 a.m. The lines were already out to the street. And there wow, so, people. yeah, th- this is something I wanted to get to, Peter. Peter Greenberg joining me from uh, just outside Izmir, Turkey, that these issues are not just domestic. They're international. I was seeing six-hour security delays in Amsterdam, yeah. uh, huge baggage uh, handling issues in France. So this issue is a is deal, basically all airlines around the world are dealing with some similar issues right now. Yes, what the airlines have done, they must have had a secret meeting in a very undisclosed location to synchronize their stupidity. 
because what I'm serious because none of this, look, you're a traveler, I'm a traveler. None of this is a news bulletin to us. It's not like saying, oh, a storm could happen at any minute. No, we knew when the storm was going to happen. We had lots of advance warning and nobody got their act together because they were operating from a playbook of morons. Now, I'm not saying they're not well-intentioned people who run the airlines. I know many of them and some of them are my friends. Although after this broadcast, who knows? But the bottom line is there are no, there are no surprises here. You have to do triage in anticipation now. You don't do triage as a, re, as a reaction. And that's their biggest mistake. They all thought they could get over this. They all thought they could get through it. Knowing what their staffing levels were, knowing what the airports were like, knowing what passport control was like, knowing what how fewer much how fewer baggage handlers they had. I mean, I have no idea what they were thinking because the numbers were in their face. It was inescapable. Um, one of the uh, you know things that is notable here, we were talking just before we uh, started taping, Peter, is that what you're seeing in terms of travel this summer speaks to the larger trend lines happening uh, globally. People wanting things to be normal again, yet lingering COVID concerns, uh, inflation cost issues, employers not uh, being fully staffed and having trouble staffing, which you see on the part of the airlines. So all of these factors that we see playing out in society and other sectors seem to be really coming together here when it comes to this travel season. They are, but there's one thing we should not ignore, and that is travel itself is not something we want to do. It's something we need to do. It's part of our cultural DNA. So people are making conscious decisions to avoid retail purchases in order to travel. They're making conscious decisions not to buy some more new clothes or a new car or, or to dine out more than they used to. They are literally saying, I'm not going to be denied. I'm going to travel. And they're willing, at least initially until they find out what's really going on, to endure the abuse. Because they remember, yeah. the, they remember the abuse pre-pandemic. Let's not kid ourselves. We had these problems before the pandemic, but not all at the same time. So. They're going to get through this summer, and then they're going to wake up and find out how much they spent, how much they've been abused. And so the fourth quarter of this year, here's my prediction, airline bookings are going to go off a cliff. Hotel bookings, off a cliff. Business travel, whatever's left, off a cliff. People are just going to say, I'm waiting until next year. They've been done for this year as of September. So if you want to travel, the best time to do it is when everything goes off a cliff. Do it after September 15th. Yeah, I was going to ask for for those, you know, we're we're talking, we're speaking here at the end of June. If you haven't made travel plans for the summer yet, what is your recommendation to folks? Is there a deal out there anywhere in the world or is it really wait till the fall? You know what? If I have a choice, look, I travel for a living. It's what I report on. It's what I do. But if I'm looking for a leisure vacation option this summer, you know what? Here's my leisure vacation option. Wheel of Fortune. I'm going to sit home. I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch people trying to pick a vowel. I'll get through the summer, but I'm going to plan now for after September 15th. Don't wait. And that includes if you have frequent flyer miles. Right now, this is the worst time to try to redeem them because airlines are all full. Their idea of, of displacing a revenue passenger to give you a free ticket, not even in the cards, right? You won't see any availability until after September 15th. But once September 15th rolls around, start redeeming your miles and be creative. Think 330 days out, not just September 15th. And use all their partner airlines in One World or Star or the Sky Team. You might be pleasantly surprised at what your options are when everybody else is recovering from trying to travel in the summer of 2022. 
What is your rule of thumb for how far out to book your flights? Is there a magic period of time when you, you know, look right now, end of June, when should you be looking and when is too far out to book something? Right. Well, in normal times, I'll let you figure out when that might be. It's about 54 days out because the airlines, you know, use sophisticated algorithms to project demand and set prices. Uh, the only exception to that 54-day rule would be dates that you already know, like the Wednesday before Thanksgiving or Christmas or, you know, New Year's Eve, things that are not going anywhere that are always high volume. But if it's not that, if it's before December 15th or after January 3rd and it's not Thanksgiving, you know what? Think of the 54-day rule and try to book it on a Sunday. That's the best day of the week to find out if there's going to be a discount fare. Sunday, Sunday bookings, 54 days out. Um, where are people, where do you see people going right now uh, this summer, this fall in record numbers? Um, where should folks, and by the way, in that part of that question is, where should people avoid going right now because they're so oversaturated, over inundated? Well, you know, because of airfares having quadrupled in many markets, uh, I'll give you an example. An airfare from Los Angeles to San Francisco from me five weeks ago was $93. That's, by the way, a flight that lasts 38 minutes. You know what it is today? 420. So if you're a family for a flight that lasts 38 minutes. So if you're a family of four, you're dealing with a ticket that's over $1,600. That you've already reached the tipping point. You're not going to do it, but you are going to cram everybody in the car, strap granny on the roof, because even if gas was $9 a gallon, you can still figure out a way to amortize that cost and get to San Francisco. So people have not stopped driving in their cars. We have not reached that tipping point despite how terrible those gas prices are and could still be. So what are people doing? They're traveling under 500 miles by car. That's number one. Number two, they're making the mistake of going to a national park. They're already overcrowded, and it's not going to get better. Even Yosemite, which is already overcrowded, they may have to close. Yellowstone was already overcrowded. Then they had a serious flood situation. Even though they're going to reopen, they're not going to reopen at full capacity. It's already a mess. So of the 423 or so national parks and monuments, most of which, by the way, don't charge an entry fee, which is great, you still better call ahead to find out if you can actually get a reservation. Now, that leaves open the possibility of a state park, but they're getting full too. So if you're going to take a road trip, then you got to figure out hotels. Hotels are capping their occupancy at 60%. Why? They don't have the staff either. And yet they're getting higher rates from, that they got in 2019 and providing half the service. That's a thrilling moment. So I'm telling you right now, the deal for this summer is the smart travelers should be contrarian travelers. You know what? Do what my parents did with me when I was in kit, when I was in school. Go to the teachers, get an extra credit assignment, and take me out of school for a week during school. There you go. Uh, the the uh, unexpected surprise fall vacation. Uh, I'm sure many kids would be excited for that. Uh, parents will have to figure that out. Uh, Peter, any places that are sort of uh, below the radar right now that people should be looking at uh, domestically and, and abroad for the for the fall? Well, domestically, I'm still a fan of the Midwest. You're going to find great deals in Wisconsin and Minnesota. You'll find great deals in Iowa. And by the way, there are great places to go. Uh, and I love those places. And I go there all the time. Internationally, there's a secret. It's called the power of the U.S. dollar. Right now, the dollar is at its strongest point against foreign currency, despite inflation, in 20 years. So you see uh, the euro it got down to as, as low as a dollar three. It's now I think about a dollar eight. Still a bargain because remember they can adjust airline fares, they can adjust hotel rates, but they can't adjust basic goods and services that the locals have to pay anyway. 
So you need to say, okay, how much is a cab ride? How much is a tube of toothpaste? How much is a dinner at a restaurant? And you'll be surprised how, how far that dollar goes. In Turkey right now, a summer vacation here will cost you 36% less than it did last year. Because the dollar is so strong against the lira, which has been devalued so many times. The same is true in South Africa. The same is true in Buenos Aires and the rest of Argentina. Go look to see where the dollar is really strong. That's where you want to go. The Caribbean is always huge for Americans. Any, uh, But there's a, obviously a, a large selection of islands that you can go to. Uh, timing and preferences right now when you're uh, when folks are looking at the Caribbean. Well, the Caribbean is always great because it's so convenient and, you know, there's short flights. However, here's where you play the game, and it's a crapshoot. Go in August and September, even though it's hurricane season, make sure you're going to a destination or a resort that offers you a hurricane storm guarantee or buy a travel insurance before a storm is officially named. Do that. Go and have fun. Will the thermometer be about 10 degrees warmer than it is in February and March? Yes. Will you be standing on a beach with screaming kids? Probably not. I'm there. Um, I wanted to ask you about the insurance. I was asking someone from an airline reached out to me on Instagram and said, you know, you I, I recommend that folks uh, buy the insurance given all the chaos that's going on. Uh, what, what do you make of that insurance uh, that is sold to you or they try to sell to you as you're purchasing the ticket is that worthwhile what is the best way it's it's for, one of my uh, biggest it's one of my biggest pet peeves i'm jumping in because i get angry uh <laughs> even with the best of intentions think about this you can't if you go online and make a reservation and so many people do which by the way i don't i'll get to that later but if you're going to do that then you already know what i'm about to tell you you can't complete the transaction unless you either opt in or opt out of the insurance you have no idea what you're covered for, and worse, you have no idea what you're not covered for. But with the best of intentions, oh, I want peace of mind if the trip gets canceled or I have to cancel, you opt in. Then you find out, as millions of Americans did during the pandemic, oh, paragraph five of section C on the policy that you never saw says, by the way, we don't cover for pandemic, Bye bye So you lose your money for the investment of the insurance, and you don't get your money back for the trip. Uh I would have said this before the pandemic. I'll say it again now. I'm not saying travel insurance is a bad idea. I'm saying a conversation about travel insurance is a great idea. Have one with a travel agent or a travel advisor. They get commissioned on these products. They can walk you through the hieroglyphics of the, of the insurance policy language so you know what you're covered for, you know what you're not, and what the exclusions are. There may be age exclusions. There may be uh, pre-existing medical exclusions. There's certainly going to be some destination exclusions. No one's going to insure me for my vacation in Syria right now. I mean, that's an extreme example, but not far from right. other places as well. You need to have that conversation, and then you can legitimately and intelligently make a decision. Now, that's for insurance called trip cancellation and interruption insurance. But there's another insurance that everybody needs to have no matter what, and it's medical evacuation and repatriation insurance. It's offered by companies like Travel Guard and MedJet Assist and Nationwide. Many, many companies offer it. The concept of this insurance is this. It's really coverage. If you get sick or injured anywhere overseas, they will pay to have you medically stabilized at that location. And the best policies, again, read the language properly, will then consult with your own personal physician who knows your medical history better than your own doctor. And then they will decide whether to send a medically equipped plane to fly you to the medical facility and doctor of your choice. Not every insurance policy has that language. Some of them will fly into the medical facility and doctor of their choice. Not a good idea. 
with all due respect, I don't want to be in a bad HMO in Uganda. I want to make sure that I'm going where I'm going to get the best care. That's why I bought the insurance in the first place. I know that MedJet does that. I know that TravelGuard does that. And even though they have some age exclusions, they just have a higher premium the older you get. So you're not going to not be covered. You need to have that. And I've had it for more than 20 years. And if I had some wood to knock on, I just found some. I've never had to use the card, but I'm very happy I have. But but as far as that initial insurance that at the as I purchased my flight to on Delta, uh, that they, you know, give me an opt-in, opt-out, you say avoid that. It's it's avoid not gonna cover that. you if they if they cancel the flight for weather. No, avoid I'm not saying avoid the insurance, but don't do it online. Yeah. Go through a third party, a travel agent or a travel uh, advisor. Remember this. If you buy the insurance from the travel provider, whether it's online or through a travel agent, the policy language of that particular insurance is less beneficial to, beneficial to you than if you bought a third-party uh, insurance. Ah, uh, okay. Okay? Got it. And not only that, if it's, a, if it's provided by the travel provider and the travel provider goes under, so does the insurance. One other thing that Americans have seen the prices skyrocket on is rental cars. Uh, I know that those companies dealt with a lot of issues, uh, you know, nearly fell apart during COVID, uh, made a, some decisions they're still dealing with the ramifications of. Um, where, where will we see rental car price relief? What are your recommendations to folks who need to rent a car at the location they're traveling to? Well, let's do a little history here. During the pandemic, the rental car companies looked out and saw hundreds of thousands of non-performing assets sitting in their parking lots going nowhere. So then the accountants came in and well, and I know what I think about accountants when they rule the asylum, everybody goes crazy. So what did they say? Sell all the fleet. So they sold most of the fleet. Then travel comes roaring back in May and June of 2021 and there are no cars. Why? Not just because they sold the fleet, but because the manufacturer is facing a chip shortage, supply chain issues. They couldn't deliver the new fleet to the rental car companies and still haven't. So rental car prices were on average $400 a day domestic U.S. In Hawaii, as much as $1,000 a day. And ridiculous. That's all they could do. Right now, They've been going down to about 150 a day, still too high because they still haven't gotten the fleet delivered. In some markets, it hasn't gone down at all. Bottom line here is if you're going to go over five, under 500 miles on a trip and you don't want to fly, drive yourself because otherwise it's going to get very, very expensive because what the, what, the, what the rental car companies did, it wasn't just the rates. It was the mileage charges. It was the drop-off charges. And those got truly draconian. You know, they give you a hundred mile a day cap. And then after that, it was 37 cents a mile. Do the math. I mean, you just tripled your costs. So, and then the drop-off charges because rental car companies were desperate to retain their fleets. They didn't want them going to another state. And then last but not least, two things you have to do now as a, uh, one you always had to do. And the other you have to do as a direct result of the pandemic when renting a car. The one that you always have to do is before you ever drive the car off the lot, take out your cell phone camera, photograph every corner of the car, any ding, any any scratch, any blemish that you didn't cause, take it there, make sure it's time-coded, then and do it on the interior of the car as well, then go back to the rental car counter, show them the photographs, have them note on the contract, this is pre-existing damage, or you can get hit with a $5,000 repair bill. That's what you always have to do regardless of the pandemic. But something else happened during the pandemic, the desperation to find a rental car and then the desperation to keep using it. So many people would rent a car 
for like a week. That was in the contract. And then said, you know what? I still need the car. I'm going to keep it two more weeks. What did the rental car companies do? They reported the car stolen. Hmm. Two weeks later, you return the rental car. You pay for it. And then Mosh goes to rent a car. He gets that car. And Mosh goes to jail for driving a stolen vehicle because the rental car company never bothered to tell the authorities the car had never been stolen. So the other thing you now have to do when you go back to the counter and you show the agent the dings, you say, can you please certify on this contract that this vehicle has not been reported as stolen? I'm serious. Wow. Great, great advice, Peter. Um, I'm going to let you go in a moment, but I just want to go around the world real quickly. For Americans looking to get to Europe in the next year, uh, any locations you recommend places they, you know, obviously there's the Londons, the Paris, the Romes, et cetera, but uh, kind of. Uh, in terms of those highlight cities, but also off the beaten path places people should take a look at. I already mentioned Turkey. That's a no-brainer. I'm a big fan of the Canary Islands. I'm a big fan of Malta. Uh, And they're all relatively close to each other when you think about it. Look at the map. Uh, Then if you're going to go to Asia, and Asia now is opening up, Vietnam and Cambodia, which used to be the most abusive in terms of their regulations during COVID, have now loosened up and they're welcoming visitors. Same thing in Thailand. Uh, where the dollar goes a long way, and they're very happy to see you. Japan has just recently opened up, but they're now requiring a visa to go. Japan is not an inexpensive proposition, but just know that it's open. And then, of course, I would wait a little longer before going to Australia and New Zealand because they're going to try to recoup all their losses in six months, which means the the prices down there are going to be pretty expensive. Peter Greenberg, anything that didn't come up that uh, you think people should know right now as they, again, look ahead to their short-term travel this summer and potentially plan for the fall or winter? The most important thing is on any flight that you're on, hope they give you a Biscoff cookie because that's going to be the highlight of your trip. <laughs> it's all down downhill from the Biscoff cookie. I, I should note, by the way, Peter and I took a flight on a uh, assignment um, a, a bit ago and they knew him well and not only brought him one Biscoff cookie, but an entire package uh, that was probably good for a couple of months there, Peter. A couple hours. <laughs> a couple, couple hours, couple hours. Peter Greenberg, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for the download um, on all things. And where can folks go to get uh, more of your insight? Two things. Our website with the imaginative name, petergreenberg.com. We're not transactive in any way. Uh, we're informational. And the same thing applies to uh, to our programs on PBS, which are also available on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. One is called The Royal Tour. The other is called The Travel Detective. And of course, you see me on CBS. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, Safe travels uh, back to the U.S. um, after finishing your assignment there in Turkey. And we'll talk again soon. You got a motion. Our thanks again to CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg for his insight. You can read more from our conversation in the Mo News newsletter. You can find that over at monews.bulletin.com. And of course, follow at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H for all your news, including travel news on Instagram. We hope to continue to bring you regular conversations and perspective from experts, leaders, and journalists involved in some of the biggest news stories around the world. Stay tuned for another edition of The Rundown on Thursday, where Jill and I will break down the news. And we have another interview in store for you on the podcast feed this weekend. This podcast has been a production of 1022. Have a great one.